Why should CBUS members have insurance through CBUS Super? Maybe it's because we understand the risks of working in our industries. Maybe it's because we offer cover that is tailored to protect building and construction workers, even those working at heights. Or maybe it's all of these reasons. So why not consider CBUS Super? CBUS for all of us. To consider if CBUS is right for you, visit cbussuper.com.au for a copy of the PDS. Before this episode of the Final Word Cricket Podcast, I want to tell you about the greatest season that was presents 99, the semifinal. It's an oral history combining all of the key moments and all of the key people from the great team of the greatest season that was presents. It's available now wherever you listen to podcasts. It's an iconic match, and it's captured brilliantly by Adam Collins, Shannon Gill, and Dan Bredick. Check it out. Let us know what you think. The Final Word Cricket Podcast is part of the Bad Producer Podcast Network. If you like it and you're listening to this, chances are you do. Tell your friends about it. Rate it and review it. It really does help. That's enough from me. Now here's Jeff Lemon, Adam Collins, and The Final Word. I had to go about it, write it out, and find it myself. And there's some stories I can tell you. I had to fail, had to fall, just for what I did well. This is The Final Word Cricket Podcast with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. Jeff, it's 12 months since the World Cup started. It's unbelievable. I can't fathom the entire year has elapsed and we're going to focus on that today. We're going to talk to Toby Tarrant, mm. the man who we spent every Monday morning with uh, through the World Cup last year and get him on the show to put on our nostalgia goggles to look in the rear vision mirror and reflect on what was 365 days ago as we were kicking off that wonderful journey together around the UK. Uh, thanks to everyone who listened to our Encore edition over the weekend and thanks to Isha Guha for uh, being with us for that interview way back when. That was beautifully received as well. Uh, and Jeff, um, as we start the show though, um, we have some really wonderful news. For, for people who like you know, round numbers, because cricket's all about that, why should you be happy when you get to 100 when more than 102 or more than 104? But for us, over the weekend, uh, since we moved to Bad Producer last year, so like a year and a few months ago, the start of last yep. year, we hit a million downloads on the show, which is fucking ridiculous, to be honest. Like, <laughs> a million <laughs> individual listens of programs that we've recorded and put out there into the world so that feels pretty wild i don't think that was ever an ambition because we wouldn't have thought that a million times people would want to listen to this show but apparently they do and they have so if you're one of them thank you so much for doing it yeah and and i think the the reason it's nice tying in with the start of the world cup 12 months ago is that this is when the real surge occurred so we've been doing this show as you know for if you're listening in and you've been with us for a while you'd know we've been doing it since 2015 and you know the first couple of those were under hidden darkness really no one really knew we did it it wasn't promoted at all um, as we've joked about on the live show even those who were paying us to do it barely knew we existed but then as as things progressed and ramped up it really was the World Cup last year where, where things got busy and um, so it's nice that we've got to that milestone on this week it's lovely actually it's you know the, we, we obviously put a lot of work into it and all the rest of it but the idea that that amount of people uh, sort of with us on this journey uh, especially through the last 12 months especially even indeed in the last three months when there's been no cricket to talk about um, yeah it's a lovely thing 
It was interesting over the weekend, I was back in the dashboard because I was looking at those numbers and, and then you can really crunch into the data and start to pull up um, all sorts of different detailed bits. And I was looking at which episodes were the most popular and um, unsurprisingly, it's the day for it, Headingly is, is our <laughs> most ever listened to episode. And in, in a Trumpian fashion, all of the numbers, the numbers are fantastic. They're very good. They're, they're some wonderful numbers. Um, but there's one episode, there's literally one episode that we have in our entire canon that has shit numbers. And I don't know why, but it's the World Cup Daily Day 5. It's not the oh, previous yeah. days. I mean, so the first week or so we're warming up on, on those numbers, but all of the previous days are better. All of the subsequent days are better. Day 5 is the day that Pakistan beat England. It was a good game, and I, I don't ah. know what we did wrong. I don't know what did we relay, but maybe we put it out late. I listened back to it. It's a good episode, but it's, it's just sitting there on about... 4,000 downloads. And I'm like, why is this so far below everything else? And that is really giving me the shit. So I'm thinking, if you've got nothing else to do at the moment, just hop on the feed, scroll down to World Cup Daily Day 5, hit play, and help address this historical wrong. <laughs> I, I, I think I do know why that will have fewer downloads. It's, it's exactly the reason you've identified. You might remember me um, badgering you for about two hours to leave the house and get to the Oval because we had to record the podcast before interviewing Jimmy Neesham and you held on and held on and held on and the finish got mm. quite close and you got down to the Oval and we had to put the podcast back to after we interviewed Jimmy Neesham so we wouldn't have got ah. that surge of downloads when people woke up in the morning so there's your explanation the surge. doesn't mean we can't rectify that historical wrong though so yep it was a great game of cricket uh, at Trent Bridge in fact we, we we discussed it briefly in our interview with Toby Tarrant uh, so yeah help us out uh, help us hit another small milestone. <laughs> very for no other reason to me, Adam. For no other reason. It's very important to me. <laughs> it's just really bugging me. I like the numbers to be in a nice, neat row, and there is just this one anomaly. And if no, you're no, trying to... If you're trying to put the blame on me and say it's because I'm late, I reject that utterly, Boris Johnson style. <laughs> Everything I did was ethical. It was considered. It was I was acting on instinct, and my instinct was to probably stay in bed. But look, World Cup Daily Day Five. It was a great day. Go and have a listen. It was a day which uh, where I where I'd raced off to um, in between sort of parting ways with you at Yahoo at whatever time of the morning that would have been. It was a Monday. I know that. I, I raced I off. I hate to that you can remember that. I'm disgusted yeah. by the fact that you can remember things like that. Well, well, well you've got to think about numbers in, in your brain. I've got to think about dates, as you know. So, And I know that uh, um, that was the day where Shannon Gill and I uh, raced off to... Uh, where do we go? Guildford, in order to interview Andy Flower for the greatest season that was about the 99 World Cup. And after that... You know, sort of uh, making a beeline uh, in Gilly's hire car for the Oval to, to make it back there in time and watch the finale of England-Pakistan. So it made sense while you were waiting because you didn't know what the result of the game was going to be. You wanted to watch to the end, but yes, we, we didn't quite get the stars aligned because we yeah, had that aforementioned oh, chat yeah. with Jimmy I was, I was watching, it was, yeah, it was England chasing and they were starting to get yeah. out at the end. Butler made the Correct. 100 and, and all the rest of it. There you go. I can remember the there cricket, but how the hell am I supposed <laughs> to know it's a Monday? Anyway, um, it's a Monday when we're recording this as it happens, but it's written on my computer screen, so that helps. Uh, but what what else has been ha happening? Oh, look, there's something very important that I found during the week, thanks to uh, my friend Mark Sutton, who works on some shows at the ABC. We've been talking a lot about the Paulie Shaw film Biodome on this show in the last few weeks because obviously England cricket are going into a biodome and all the rest of it. Just coincidentally, as it happened, Mark popped this up online. Uh, he'd been reading the trivia section on the biodome entry on the IMDb website. <laughs> the first two items on the trivia section say... 
Alec Baldwin told his brother Stephen Baldwin that doing this movie could end his acting career. (laughs) 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 And the second item says, Kylie Minogue has called this film her worst career move. She said it's the only thing she has done in her professional life that her father ridicules her for. Oh, so those are the first two a, items for Biotope. We, we must do some sort of, I mean, I know that collective rewatches are a bit of a thing at the moment. Mm. We must find a, a way at some point to do a final word uh, rewatch of, of Paulie Shaw's mm. Magnus Opus Biodome. We'll find a way to do that at some Sometimes, point, I'm sure. So. I, I kind of doubt that Paulie Shaw is very busy at the moment. Um, I, I also had a little look online and apparently in 2013, Stephen Baldwin appeared on a radio show hosted by a person called Man. Cow Muller and confirmed that he is in talks with Paulie Shaw about making a sequel revolving around the children of their characters in the original film. Silence on that since 2013, sadly, <laughs> devastatingly, but you know, maybe they're still in talks. It's one of those sort of classic films that were, were that Foxtel bought early days, and you know, we, we got um, Foxtel at home, and you know, when I was 12 or something, and it was a massive deal, you know, from a relatively sort of very working class sort of background. Or getting paid to, in order to watch the cricket, I think it was the overseas tours, or that, that was probably the, the incentive. And uh, I know Biodome was one of those movies that was rolled out time and time again, much like Airheads, uh, uh, Brendan <laughs> Fraser, Adam Sandler, that also stands out in the memory from 25 years ago. So maybe we'll get Paul Shaw on the show and we'll do the rewatch together. If, he, if he's got not mm. got, there's that thing these days where you can, what is it, cameo, where you you can write into a celebrity to give you you a mm. shout out, and they put like um, Snoop Dogg uh, shouting out George Pell. It, it, did, that, did that happen? Did I, I didn't know that. Yes, yeah, so yeah, somebody that, somebody on George Pell's behalf sent in a request uh, to say that George was going through a tough time, and that and that Snoop Snoop should wish him wish him some good vibes. Um, Snoop Snoop later recanted and said that he wasn't aware who George Pell was, but he did not wish to send him any good vibes. So I know whose side I'm on in that. He did not wish to smoke weed every day with George Pell, strictly speaking. But no, the the. Um the yeah the, the the cameo system you can the, the celebrity can put their own figure up so maybe he's on there mm. and if Paulie Shaw's on there for a, a modest amount of money well maybe he'll sit down and watch Biodome with us when the first test match starts uh, in England on what will probably be the eighth of July we'll come to that in a little bit first of all we'll stay in England Jeff when it comes to the actual news of the week and, and note that it looks very likely that that Australia will be able to to host India Kevin Roberts has called that a nine out of ten probability at this stage but um, perhaps more interesting was that Australia will, will probably, between times, come to England. Now, Jeff, you were the one talking about this a few weeks ago, saying that why wouldn't there be an opportunity for Australia to visit England for those white ball internationals scheduled for July, impossible to take place in the current climate, and why wouldn't they push it back to the end of the year when England would, would otherwise be playing Ireland? And it turns out that's exactly uh, what might be on the cards. Uh, Robert's saying he thinks there is some chance they'll send a team over. So I guess that's all pending what happens in the Biodome test matches against the West Indies and Pakistan and and the other internationals they've got planned around it, which, again, we'll come to a little bit later. But, I mean, that, that's a that's a pretty good result uh, for, for cricket fans as well, I think, that, you know, England and Australia, that, that'll generate plenty of interest and activity at the end of this long stretch. I know it's not ideal and I know they'll, they won't have a lot of context around them, but, hey, you know, uh, um, I, I'm, I, I'm vaguely looking forward to that. Look, England is supposed to play Australia every year in the cricket, some form or another. It, it yeah. has to happen. So in this case, you don't necessarily think it's a hugely important series that has to happen, but if they can get the biosecured 
tests happening, then at least there's a precedent for how it could be worked out on the ground. I, I suppose the main question for me is how do you get to England? Um, because it seems like flights are such a, f- a vector for the infection. You know, so many people got it or came down with it after coming off flights and Mm. there isn't necessarily great scientific study on that but you'd have to think you'd be a lot more likely to catch it on a plane than almost any other environment given the enclosed nature of it so uh, that's probably the main thing is, is can you actually get into the country safely you know once you're there you might be able to protect yourself well they are sponsored by an airline when they play overseas so maybe that airline could give them their own private plane for the for the month, well, I suppose time will tell. When the games are played in England in the middle of the year, the ICC have confirmed the spit ban. But they've added to that, uh, Jeff, to say that it won't be a, a full time a full time spit ban. So there'll be a you know a, a, a window where they'll 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 relax that. But in mm. the short term, and this is where the players are going to kick off. This will be the friction point. They're saying there won't be other artificial substances which are permitted. So uh, last week we were discussing that there might be some sort of lotion or wax. Um, to supplement the sweat because the view of Pat Cummins, for example, during the week is that sweat will not be sufficient to get the shine on the ball. And thinking about it, I think I agree with that. It, it really was the, the spit in high concentration, like sweat off your arm or whatever. I, I don't think that will be able to do the trick. So, yeah, there might be a, a situation where they have to find a compromise because the bowlers will, will kick off and, and then there'll be the, the debate about the balance between bat and ball and, and mm. so on. So, yeah, that, that, that is an interesting... Uh, I don't think it's the last we've heard of it, put it that way. Yeah, I, it's, it's all about viscosity with saliva. You know, spit is thick. Yeah. It's, it's, and especially if you've been chewing on sweets all day, it's, it's a whole <laughs> lot thicker. Sweat as you pointed out as well if, if it's say a cool day in England and you've been standing in the slip cordon and you're the ball manager you're not going to have any sweat on hand because you're not going to be sweating you know the bowlers might be the only ones who'll work up a sweat as they get into a spell but it, it's it seems it's unadventurous from the cricket committee to say you know Anil Kumble was talking about it saying we've been very focused on eliminating any external substances coming into the game I tend to say why not at this period of time when you know that it's it's a it's a controlled experiment if you will it's a a controlled period of time you know it's temporary you say well let's give it a go let's see if making beeswax available or whatever it is that you agree on as an aid to polish the ball actually helps produce better and more interesting bowling this hang up on you must have the purity of the ball unadorned with anything even though you're allowed to slobber all over it is contradictory anyway the fundamental thing should be what makes the sport better what makes the sport more interesting and it's really just a matter of precedent. If it had happened to be the way from the beginning of time 150 years ago that you used beeswax to polish the ball and that's what you did, then no one would argue with it. It's like putting chalk on a pool cue. No one says, well, you shouldn't do that because that's cheating because you're tampering with the cue. You're getting a, an unfair advantage from an artificial substance. That's just the way it's done. Why not? try something in cricket just because it hasn't been done that way doesn't mean that you can't start to do it differently and and see if it makes a better game. Yeah, and it's a good chance for them to tie in a few of these other threads about external uh, objects being able to come into contact with the ball. I mean, we we talked about it perhaps two or three weeks ago, Jeff, that when it came to ball tampering before Cape Town, there was just an acceptance that a lot of subterranean activity did take place. Uh, you know, I've talked about it a number of times, but Vicious Peace on 
on on ball management four or five years ago, where players off the record and on background were happy to explain how they how they manage. It was almost a point of pride how they were able to flout the the, the, the playing conditions and as they are at the moment. So with you know now we kind of know it's a bit more out in the open. This might have been an opportunity for the ICC, and still is probably an opportunity for the ICC to say, well, look, you know, we, we know what you are endeavouring to do. Um, there's a way of doing it in a more hygienic way, and we will let you use this substance to achieve the outcome that you want, and everyone can kind of sign off on that. Yeah, it does feel mm. a bit reductive from Kumble that he's simply saying that, according to the commentary last night, that an external object is an external object, and that is that. Yeah, or, or that we've made a real point of avoiding doing this. You know, what? Yeah. what's wrong with doing it? Like maybe there's an asterisk over a few wickets for that six-month period where you say, well, you know, Broad picked up that eight for 19 in one of the matches where they were allowed to put wax on the ball or whatever it might be. But so be it. You know, let the bowlers have a bit of fun once in a while. Yeah. Is Seabus yeah. Super Performer of the Week is an important award that we hand out every week. And I think given our earlier conversation, it's got to go to Kylie Minogue for having the guts <laughs> to stand up and say, no, this is what I want to do in, in my acting career. This is how I want it to go. I want to be part of this. Seabus, of course, invest directly back into the building and construction in industry across Australia, meaning that if a biodome were built, they would potentially be investors in it that would create jobs for members and support the industry. If you want to find out about their biodome plans, you can go to cbossuper.com.au to get a product disclosure statement, which is what I assume a PDS stands for, although I've never looked it up. Uh, And you can remember that past performance does not necessarily indicate future performance. Matthew Beggs, who was on the show last week in, in reply to your tweet, uh, asking for memories of the 2019 World Cup, said that a great memory for him is learning about Seabus Super and not just about <laughs> what they do, but I, th- I think what he was trying to say was that um, day in, day out, when we would obviously have the Seabus the Super commercials on, on the daily show and then we would talk about it um, through the Ashes well, the Ashes Daily as well about what they were offering members and so on. And, uh, and I think that was very nice where a great memory of the World Cup for us was that those outside of Australia and not knowing the story of industry super funds and not knowing the story of Seabus <laughs> were like, what the fuck are you guys on about? And they, they pieced it together. But the spelling of it, the C bus, the number of graphics that were sent to us, and mm. and so on. That that was that was really cool. So um, yes, yeah, C bus have been a big part of our last twelve months, and it all started <laughs> at the World Cup. So thanks so much to them uh, for being so loyal to us and so supportive. I like the fact that so many people have a, a kind of um, a positive. What's a positive version of PTSD? But they have those flashbacks when they hear the the song, you know, the the, the Seven Dwarves, Hi Ho Hi Ho, yeah. bit, and they just go, Ah, it's I'm waking up in the morning listening to something about the World Cup. I must be. I think we should get on to talking about the World Cup. We've got Toby waiting in the cupboard, locked in the next room, and uh, we can let him out. Yes, let's do that, Jeff. Toby Tarrant is a host on Radio X, a very entertaining individual. He was a colleague of ours last year during the World Cup. And after a, a quick break, it'll be over to him and us having a conversation about how wonderful it was when the Carnival of Cricket came to England last year. Before we move on, it is important to note that it is the time of the month where a Wisden Cricket Monthly emerges, as it does once each month, as we have divined from watching the clocks. We've looked at the stars, we've seen what the Taurus is doing, what the Scorpion's doing, 
what the Sagittarius is doing and it is time for Wisdom Cricket Monthly. It's going to come out the latest issue on the 29th of May in mostly digital forms, I suppose, because physical forms are a bit hard to distribute at the moment. But uh, it's, it's coming, Adam. You can hear it. Oh, and you better believe it's coming out in physical form as well. Uh, that's being posted out um, in the next couple of days. Uh, and what they're doing this month is they're celebrating the best of the English domestic game, uh, while, of course, everyone over here is missing the start of the year. So no hand-wringing about formats, about finances, about Colpac players or, or any of that. Instead, they've tried to sum up what makes the county game unique, what makes it great. So they've gone and charted the best 50 moments of the last 50 years, they've gone through the best sides to ever compete, uh, the lives of county umpires. And Melinda Farrell, our dear colleague uh, in the freelance beat, uh, has taken a look at her love affair with the English domestic game, of course, <laughs> another Australian who lives over here and why it means a lot to her. So, um, if, if yes, it's a, it's a nostalgic edition of the final word this week in many respects. And there'll be that yeah. flavour in the magazine this month, which, which feels right given we're kind of trending towards a new season, but... We don't get a chance to pause and, and look back too often with cricket. There's a bit of the perpetual motion machine about, about cricket sometimes. And, yeah, I think in, in some respects what the last few months has given us is a chance to stop and understand why we sort of love the game. And uh, I'm sure this edition will, will do that justice when it comes to domestic cricket in England. I like the idea of looking at the, the secret lives of county umpires, you know, what goes on behind the scenes. Well, then I went inside and I made a piece of toast uh, and I put the toast down in the saucer and I put a thick layer of butter on top of the toast. Um, like, it's going to be amazing. This is, this is going to be some real hot stuff. Or, or maybe there are some county umpires who are, who are just absolute trash bags, like massive root rats always out on the gear, like up to God knows what, you know, um, just having a bit of... Charlie wake up in the in the urinal before they head out to, to fire ULBW very enthusiastically <laughs> yeah, well, to one that's going I, a mile I, down I, league side. I'm not for a moment linking the two, so I've got to be careful to state that before, but I always <laughs> love the idea that when we're finished a test match wherever we are around the world, Jeff, that we get to see the umpires um, dressed in their civilian clothes. Because, you, you know, umpires yeah. are... You, you and don't it's think weird. of them as wearing anything other than a hat and the you know the white shirt and the, and mm. the black trousers. And um, the one who always stands out to me is Nigel Long, who's often wearing a t-shirt mm. that wouldn't be out of place in a '90s surf commercial and a pair of baggy jeans <laughs> and a pair of wraparound Oakley Speed Dealer sunglasses type things. So Nigel Long, yeah. of course, is an umpire over here. Uh, and uh, Mariah Asmus, who's not from um, the, the UK, but he's another one who you often see strolling about in a pair of shorts and a t-shirt, you know, enjoying life, living it up. And Gunnar Gould, who's left the, the county circuit but sorry left the international scene i'm not sure whether he's going to stay on as a county umpire but there's been some talk i think he's doing one more year maybe something like that well there's been some talk they might call him up to, to do some of these internationals mm. because he's one of the well now former elite panel members but but ian gould was always great value when, when a test finished early so yeah there, there yeah. are there, there is a bit of a disconnect i suppose with what we think of umpires doing as you said before having a fairly straight-laced existence and, and what they might get up to <laughs> after dark well, Nigel Long, yeah, he dresses like Dominic Cummings, um, but then Richard <laughs> oh. Kettlebury is, is Richard Kettlebury's buff as hell. Like you run into Richard yeah. Kettlebury around the place, and suddenly this large, muscular man walks past you with with like calves popping out and, and biceps, and you're like, "Who is this incredibly fit individual?" And you're like, "It's because umpires always look small for some reason." I don't know. You, you see Kettlebury out in the middle, and he looks small. You run into him in person, and you're like, "You should be called Richard Kettlebells, eh?" Um, He's, he's just very, very... He's usually going for a run. Alim Dara, a couple of years ago when we were in Bangladesh, that must have been 2017, 
I think it was Bangladesh, it might have been India, I think it was there, uh, really wanted to play table tennis uh, during uh, the tour. And we were all, uh, I'm struggling, it may not have been Bangladesh. Anyway, wherever it was we were at the time, and he was the umpire on duty. So he was was taken, he, he basically was hanging out in the Australian team room playing in table tennis competitions against the players after dark to how he wanted to pass his time. So, um, you know, there's that cross-pollinisation, I suppose, between players and officials after dark. (laughs) Jeff, there's a piece in the mag which I've not read yet, but I'm really looking forward to getting stuck into by the magazine editor, Joe Harmon, about the summer of 2000 when West West Indies uh, were were touring England. And um, part of the reason I'm looking forward to it is revisiting what he has to say about that crazy test match at Headingley where was it 20 wickets fell in one day and it was over in... Two days, it was bonkers, including an over where Andy Caddick took four wickets in the space of five balls, I think it was. Um, and Mark Nicholas called it superbly. I, I went back and listened to that audio for Calling the Shots, which comes out this Friday, where Mark Nicholas is, is one of our guests uh, on that mm. edition of the show, talking about the, I guess, the glory days of, of, uh, of Channel 4 <laughs> commentary. And, and he did talk about that, about uh, all those wickets falling in a hurry. And, and Nicholas calls it pitch perfect. He goes, at the end of the, the, the procession of, of, of victims, he says, you wouldn't write about it in a comic book. <laughs> it's just a, such a, a great Mark Nicholas uh, 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 reference point. So... Um, two that, two that questions been, here. Yeah. Why did he sound like Drew Morfitt when he said that in your impression? <laughs> <laughs> no, sorry, he was more like Dennis Cometti, wasn't he? Yeah, it was uh, more Cometti, uh, wasn't it? Yeah. And also, uh, well, not a question, but a statement. Interestingly, as you're talking about this, I dug out an issue of Wisdom Cricket Monthly a couple of days ago from that year about that season because it's the uh-huh. one that had a picture of Craig White on the cover that I sent to you. It, it's the, 90, the, the most boring... Yeah. Uh, the unflattering, it's just a boring headshot of Craig White in a in his county shirt and it says, white hot is the headline. <laughs> and you're thinking, oh, with covers like this, it's no wonder they fly off the shelves. Um, but here we are and they're talking about that series 20 years on in the rebooted version of Wisdom Cricket Monthly once again. And it is a beautiful cover. That's the other thing about Wisdom Cricket Monthly uh, in, in recent months. It's that their cover game, not to say it hasn't always been outstanding, but um, the last four or five covers of the mag have been just magnificent, and this one is as well um, in terms of painting that picture of the last 50 years of, of county cricket. Um, also in the mag, England skipper Heather Knight is talking to Phil Walker about the NHS, inequality, leadership. John Hotton tries to get inside the mind of James Vince, who's probably the most divisive English batsman of his generation. And Ali Mitchell talks about her first steps inside the broadcasting box alongside an all-time legend jeff in order to pick up the mag at this heavily discounted final word price (laughs) which gets you six editions of it for six quid or ten bucks it's so straightforward bit.ly forward slash wcm final we'll have it in the show notes could not be more straightforward bit.ly so bit.ly forward slash wcm final it'll be there in the show notes six editions of wisdom cricket monthly six quid ten bucks it's a hell of a deal as the best cricket mag in the world. Subscribe now. Hi, I'm Dave Warner and you're listening to The Final Word. This is The Final Word with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins. And the time has come. It's a year on just about from the start of the 2019 World Cup. It was the time of our lives, the best of times, the blurst of times. And one of the weird things that happened during that World Cup was that Adam and I did a weekly 
TV style internet show for Yahoo Sport in the UK and that meant that we had to get up at 6am every Monday morning after coming in from God knows where around the country drag our sorry selves into a studio and sit down with a guy called Toby Tarrant who hosted our show now it was a tight half hour show we only ever got you know 30 seconds on an answer we had to move on to the next segment so we, we had a really good time with Toby nonetheless and we thought we'd like to be able to kick back to, to speak at a bit more length and to, to, to look back at that year that was that strange time that happened a year ago so first of all welcome to the show Toby Tarrant thank you very much for having me chaps it's finally nice to be on this podcast that you're always banging on about every time I log on to Twitter it's nice to finally be here I wanted to talk to you first about a couple of interesting times that you had last year. So as I was saying, Adam and I would be working all around the country on the World Cup and getting back to London at stupid hours and feeling pretty sorry for ourselves. If you've ever seen Daniel Norcross at six in the morning, you know that it is not the time for Daniel Norcross to be awake. (laughs) But Toby, you were at least two of the weeks that we recorded this show coming in at 6am. You came back from Glastonbury on one weekend to do it. And then you came back from the Champions League final in Spain on another weekend to do it. Yeah. It, uh, <laughs> How did that work out for you in the medium term? Uh, not great. Yeah, I was, uh, yeah, it was, uh, so the very first show, I'm trying to get my dates right. So the very first show was Champions League weekend. Mm. So we all met f- properly for the first time kind of in the green room before we went live. And I just stared at you all going, I've not slept in four days. I've been in Madrid celebrating the Champions League win. I'm a Liverpool fan. So it was best weekend of my life. Um, just make sure that Pip is out of earshot as, as I say that um, and uh, oh mate it was awesome yeah so that was uh, I remember staring down the camera at the very first show and just seeing five cameras staring back at me and going I, I don't know how I'm going to make this work but we we, we blagged our way for it thankfully I could uh, didn't you come back on a bus or something because there were no flights left the flights were very very expensive so what did we do we did coach from Madrid to somewhere in Spain couldn't tell you where uh, flight from there to Dublin, Dublin to London, London to home, home to work, basically, in the space of about oh. 18 hours or something. It was nuts. So, yeah, I hadn't slept too much. Um, and then a few weeks later, did the Glastonbury weekend, my first ever Glastonbury. And uh, I couldn't tell you what we talked about on that cricket show that morning, I'll be honest with you. It's all, it's all a bit of a blur. But the beauty of working with professionals like yourselves and Dan Norcross and Izzy Westbury is just ask you the questions and have a kit while you're answering and then snap back into life when <laughs> when I hear it go silent, basically. The, the first couple of weeks of the show, uh, I mean, obviously we had a great start to the tournament with the uh, second ball of the tournament, Imran Tahir uh, taking a wicket and, and, and celebrating like Pat Cash after winning Wimbledon and then <laughs> the Ben Stokes catch out in front of the uh, the Peter May stand, if I recall correctly. And it was just, you know, it was exciting at the very start and Bangladesh beat South Africa. But in all that rain, um, all those rain delays yeah. and all the rest of it, which th- there was a time there at the start and even before the tournament, the the, uh, the opening ceremony, which was about the most poxy thing you've ever seen in your life, Jeff, where we we went along and shot some stuff next to Buckingham Palace with, uh, including Pat Cash, actually, who was representing Australia in a, in a twos <laughs> tournament. <laughs> Uh, it was of course he was, and, sure. Freezing cold and raining and all the rest of it. And we, there was a genuine fear at that point, though, that this was going to be a, a damp squib, that this was not going to work, that the whole tournament was um, was going to be a shambles in the absence of like these reserve days and, and the sanctity of it would be ruined and so on. Yeah, well, I mean, I, from my point of view, obviously I was absolutely buzzing when, when England got a, a Cricket World Cup. And uh, I do remember then you guys had the luxury of travelling around the country and seeing it everywhere. But in London, 
it didn't feel like that big a deal because if you've ever been to London, there's a million festivals and, you know, comedy shows and there's always stuff going on. So the Cricket World Cup in London was just another thing that was happening that month kind of thing. And there was, I was a bit worried about it when I saw the opening ceremony, which was so budget. I mean, you compare the London 2012 <laughs> Olympic opening ceremony to the Cricket World Cup opening ceremony. I mean, the fact that you two got in shows how fucking carefree they were with the invitation list. Anyone could rock up. They couldn't believe anyone wanted to go to it. So, um, yeah, so, and then the rain. I mean, look, look, if you're going to hold any sort of sporting tournament in England, you've got to accept that it is going to rain at some point. But I think uh, that rain all across that second week of the tournament, or the early games anyway, was you're suddenly going right, this might be a bit of a shambles, this, uh, and we'll come to it later. Luckily, nobody nobody remembers that opening week anymore after how it all ended. The, the, I, I need to walk people through this opening ceremony a bit. <laughs> so... They had a, you know, they had a stage and music and things as you'd expect. Then they had these miles and miles of fencing to make sure that nobody could actually get into the thing. So there were about 30 people on the inside. J- just in case anybody wandering past thought, oh, I might like to attend this event, uh, they were <laughs> prohibited by thousands of security staff. Let's break, um, it, break it into that really shit-looking party over there. <laughs> <laughs> with, with like 60 really bored-looking people holding plastic cricket bags. Everyone there was being paid to be there. They were all of a sudden all these paid backup dancers at the the music gig and so on. And then they played the celebrity pairs game where they had uh, two representatives from each cricket nation. And I need to walk people through this in a little bit of detail because this was this was the most extraordinarily shithouse piece <laughs> of, of organisational PR I've ever seen. So Freddie Flintoff is hosting. Alright, that makes sense. He played cricket. He also hosts Top Gear, so they have to get Paddy McGuinness along who hosts Top Gear with him because, I don't know, Paddy McGuinness the only thing I've ever seen him on is like a, a betting ad on the TV, so I'm not sure what he does. And, and then they're teamed up with Shibani Dandeko, who's an IPL anchor, to get the Indian audience, right? That all sort of makes sense. Then they go, all right, we need two people from each country. West Indies, Sir Viv Richards and Johan Blake. That kind of works. Johan Blake played a bit of cricket. He actually hit more sixes than Viv Richards did. It wasn't going very well. Um, for Australia, Brett Lee's playing and then Pat Cash is there and you're like, oh, Pat Cash? I, I mean, I guess at least he played things for Australia. He's got the headband on. Then they have South Africa. Jacques Kellis, no worries. And Stephen Pienaar, the former (laughs) winner for Everton. And and at this point, this is where I'm going like, when I think of cricket, I don't necessarily think Stephen Pienaar. He doesn't, you've watched a lot more football than me. Has he ever had a real cricket vibe? Uh, No, I can't, I can't recall him ever playing cricket. There's even Everton fans listening to this going, oh yeah, Stephen Pienaar, he was a thing. Oh yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So then New Zealand have James Franklin, who would have to be well down the list of underwhelming New Zealand all (laughs) They were all billed as legends, by the way. New Zealand legend, James Franklin. Um, No offence, James. And then Sean Fitzpatrick is there, who was an all-black captain in about 1952 and was was trying to bat on one knee and couldn't get bat to ball. India's got Anil Kumble and then Farhan Akhtar, who was a film director, who was playing cricket for them for some reason. And this is where it starts to get really niche, and I loved this more and more as we went on. Well, it Mahalo goes niche from here, Sri Lanka. It? Yeah, but we're going further into the niche. This is like a, an Arctic exploration falling into a crevasse. This is our niche we're getting. Um, Mahela getting up there with Damianthi Dasha, who once won a sprinting medal at the South Asia Games. Yeah. 
Sri Lankan legend. Afghanistan had Ariana Saeed, who was a, a singer and a judge on Afghan Star and had the hit song <laughs> Mashallah, meaning God has willed it. Uh, and she was there with Mervais Ashraf, who played about two games for Afghanistan back in the day. Bangladesh had the slow left armor Abdur Razak, Bangladesh legend, uh, and the singer-actress at Jaya Asan. And then England have Kevin Peterson with Chris from Love Island, who <laughs> never had a last name. He was just introduced as Chris from Love Island every fucking time. And then just to cap it all off, <laughs> to cap it all off, Azhar Ali for Pakistan, along with Malala Yousafzai. So the Nobel Prize winner who was shot in the head and survived for, and, and ended up setting up educational institutes across the world is definitely the person you need as a, a Pakistan ambassador to open a World Cup. Yeah. Yeah. When you think cricket, you think Malala. And she actually yeah. did play one really nice cover drive, so it must be in the gene somewhere. Well, but that, was, that was what they put together, the most random fucking collection of people they could come up with from across these. It, it was literally just, who who do we find when we put that country into Google and have you got an email for them? It was Malala, Chris from Love Island and James Franklin together yeah. at last. Yes. Yeah. Because whenever the I get asked that party. question, yeah, exactly. Whenever I get asked that question, which three people do you have at dinner party? <laughs> Funnily enough, I've always said Chris from Love Island, Malala, and James Franklin. So it was great to see them under one roof. <laughs> He's so often wheeled out, isn't he? Chris from Love Island is, is like the one celebrity who likes cricket a little bit, so they can get yeah. him into each event mm. from time to time. I think he hosted a bunch of the stuff for the World Cup leading up. So but it was so cold and yuck. I remember that afternoon, Jeff. I mean, you were struggling. You battled in the cold, and it was, and it, it was, it yep. was very grotty. And you know, it, far from what we've got. Um, I guess at the end of May this year where it's glorious seemingly every day but um, it did sort of have that vibe of if this is the opening ceremony even though yeah, we'd been yeah. assured that they, they'd done it that way intentionally that it was budget on purpose but there was that kind of underlying fear that 99 was a wasn't a tournament that um, people thought of highly for, from an England perspective. I mean, I know that it was a great tournament mm. from uh, an, an Aussie perspective, and I think the, the elimination stages were awesome in '99. You know, done a whole bloody podcast on the whole thing, but yeah, th there was that kind of underlying anxiety. The, yeah, it could really suck, and yeah. the. the, the the clinch was the drone footage from the opening ceremony where they had the band playing that really mediocre song that was the anthem for the that I can't even remember. And and then they had the drone fly up from the stage to reveal the inverted commas crowd, close inverted commas. <laughs> and this just clearly showed there was no one fucking there. And they immediately cut away from the shot and went back to close-ups of the 30 people they'd paid to show up. It was and at that point you're thinking, this tournament could suck so bad yeah yeah it was like donald trump's inauguration when it panned up you're gonna actually there's, a, there's only people at the front don't show the back don't show the back whatever you do yeah it was uh same as the hair because as a nation as well england we can um a lot of people in charge of organizing things like this are so out of touch with what people actually want to see and we are very capable of putting on if you've ever been to a local village fete in the UK, then mm. you know just how shit an event we can throw. <laughs> and I was, Some maypole dancing. Uh, yeah, exactly. That. And, and, and guess how much this marrow weighs. And, and you can, yeah. I mean, so I was like, oh my God. The conga line for VE day, that's really what sums up Britain <laughs> yeah, for me. The socially exactly. distanced conga line yeah. to, to uh, revere the troops because we all know that conga dancing is the way to do that. That's genuinely, I, I, when I was watching the opening ceremony of the cricket, I was going, I swear to God, if it cuts to Viv Richards and Malala doing a fucking conga, this is curtains before it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so yeah, so uh, but luckily, luckily uh, it picked up from there. But yeah, I have to yeah. admit, early on I was going, oh my god, the whole world's watching, and we've thrown a village fate. <laughs> this is a shocker. Um, 
<laughs> right. So uh, we, we, I guess the other thing that we were worried about, Adam, was the 10-team World Cup thing, that mm. that the ICC, well, the member nations had cut it down to those 10 teams. We knew that was going to be an issue coming into it. And it pretty quickly divided into basically who was likely to be the top four and then the other six. South Africa and, and the West Indies were pretty horrific. Uh, Sri Lanka were underperforming. Pakistan were erratic, uh, as they generally seem to be. And there, it was really only Bangladesh who was the team from that bottom group who looked like they might be able to push up into a top four with Afghanistan down the bottom. And, and from quite a long way out, it looked like, here's your top four, and sort of what's the point of playing the rest of the group stage? Yeah, there was a bit of that. I think when Pakistan beat England early on, that was a great game of cricket. Because, you know, people thought heading into the tournament that, that England, if they got off to a good start, um, their, their big danger games could come later, but they were, you know, the, the, the number one ranked side in the world for a reason, and they kind of showed that in the elimination stage like six weeks later or whatever. But at the time, you know, Pakistan win that game and we're thinking we might, you know, Bangladesh, of course, beating South Africa um, on the opening weekend at the Oval, which was a wonderful day, one of the best days of cricket, certainly one of the best in that tournament. Um, I think owing to the fact that it wasn't expected and, and Bangladesh didn't have great form coming in and um, you, you're sort of suddenly thinking that something might be possible with them. They go on and beat the West Indies a couple of weeks later down in Taunton. Um, so Bangladesh are there and thereabouts. But you're, you're right, Jeff. it did. Um, the group stage did drag on and, and we kind of needed, Toby, the big England stumble. I mean, of course they go on and win the bloody thing, but... Sri Lanka, who were absolutely nowhere in this tournament, being pounded routinely. Um, they rock up to Headingley and England are, are doing it on the bit and then suddenly England collapse. They lose to Sri Lanka and the arse falls out. They lose to Australia a couple of days after that at Lords, uh, you know, when Australia are finding top gear, if you like, and, and, and suddenly England have to play India at Edgebaston. And if they lose that, they're pretty much... Finding top tournament. gear hosted by Freddie Flintoff and Paddy yeah, McGee. Right. <laughs> no, you know, there, there was this narrative that England weren't far away from falling off the cliff and it, that, you know, they were buckling under pressure. And it all started with Sri Lanka, who, as I say, were a few days before that an absolute laughingstock. Yeah, I agree. Because the, t- the tournament structure, you know, we don't have to go back into it now because it's happened and there's nothing we could do about it. But I think it did. I didn't particularly, I wasn't a fan of it. I don't think it worked particularly well because it, there was a lot of dead rubbers towards the end. But I guess, thankfully, for the neutral point of view, England stumbling at least made their a few games worth watching towards the end. And uh, well, I think what happened, if you look back at the whole tournament, was England came into that being the best team in the world, setting stupid scores, 350, mm. 400. And then it came to the tournament and I think batsmen folded under the pressure. They stopped backing themselves playing shots. And then suddenly, also I think what the four years beforehand didn't prepare England for was, it's very different chasing at a World Cup. When you're chasing in a seven-game series where you can mm. afford to lose three of them and still win the series, there's no pressure. But suddenly the English batsmen, I think, looked a bit nervous and a bit scared. Home tournament suddenly chasing 280, which they used to do in about 30 overs, they started having that fear of failure. And I think England took a while to adjust to, okay, we're not going to score 350. Let's be honest, England's bowlers for the four years running up to the tournament had the easiest job in the world. Go at sevens and we'll go at 7.1 when we bat. That was really how... So you could have an economy of 6.9 and you were in the England team for four years with no questions asked. And suddenly it came down to the tournament and the batsmen were going, actually, I don't think we're going to be able to set 350 and just tee off here. It's a bit overcast. The pitches aren't great. And also there's a bit of pressure now. Um, And luckily, England just about learned how to chase those smaller scores or set those smaller totals just towards the end of the group stages enough Mm. to, uh, to get through it. But I remember watching the Australia game, which is well... 
David Warner hit a couple of fours in the first over off Chris Wokes. And like, that was the first moment I thought, shit, we could actually go out of this tournament here. I remember you were eight for naught after one over. And I went, we've just taken for granted that we're going to at least get to the semi-finals of this thing. It would be so England to mm. bottle it in our own tournament and not get out the group <laughs> stages after four years of spanking everyone. Um, and when David Warner got off to a, a, a decent start against England, I thought, you know what, we could we could really screw this up. But uh, I think Archer got Finch very first ball at the other end, and, and then uh, and then luckily from there we ended up chasing two hundred and thirty-two down and we managed to just about rescue it. Um, maybe we needed that wobble. Maybe that wobble suited England. It's better to do the wobble there at the start than do it in the semi-finals, I guess. Yeah, I think it was that moment of panic of because the Pakistan game was where it was set up for England to win in England style, you know, chase 350. And they nearly did. They mm. got 330 or so, but they didn't chase the 350 and suddenly it was like, oh shit, what if our method doesn't work? But I sent out a prompt on Twitter before we recorded and asked people to let us know what they remembered and got a bunch of great replies back. Thanks to everyone who replied back to that. A lot of people bringing up that point you mentioned, Adam, about Sri Lanka, but in the context of the Sri Lankan pool party. Uh, the, the Sri Lankan <laughs> team, after underwhelming for the first half of the pool stage, just cracking the shits massively. Dimuth Karina Atnik coming in as one-day captain, having not played a one-day game in about four years because they needed someone to fill in and saying, you know what? We haven't had a fucking pool at any of the places we've stayed at. There's been no swimming pool and we can't do our soft muscle tissue recovery. It's not good enough. Then they got a pool and the next thing you know, they come out and roll England, the supposed um, world champions, uh, en route. And that was the moment where we thought, Karuna Ratner's got something about him. We like this guy in charge. And Sri Lanka's pool party has done the job. I mean, you can't argue with that they've literally said we we need a swimming pool and then they get given a swimming pool and they beat England the best team in the world you've got to wonder if they'd had a pool at the start of the tournament Karuna Ratna having not played one day cricket in god knows how long he should have been lifting that trophy above his head what if it was being played in a pool if you played the World Cup in a swimming pool they would have absolutely pissed it in oh they're, they're bank, they bank on them all day long wouldn't you yeah it was uh it was so England to lose to that very average of very random Sri Lankan team. Um, basically, they did the opposite of what most teams do. Most teams, you spend four years building towards a World Cup and then stick with the names that got you there. And Sri Lanka spent four years building towards a World Cup and then a week before it started, got rid of everyone. <laughs> and just called back a load of blokes that we'd all forgotten about. Even Stephen Pienaar was going, who are these blokes? <laughs> he almost played for Sri Lanka, probably. <laughs> I think we loved also, Jeff, and this came up on Twitter a little bit, the uh, the bodybuilder Gulbadeen Naib, talking of, of skippers, oh, uh, the, F- the Afghani captain. The great who, man. Um, who, I think, did it end, the pool stage ended for them, did it not, Jeff? Or maybe it was the penultimate game against Pakistan in nearly a riot when Gulbadeen bowled himself in the final over, defending 10 or mm. thereabouts, and, and the runs were collected and, and all hell broke loose. Yeah, I reckon, was it a couple of overs before the end? It might have been at sort of the, the tipping point, uh, and, and that was the over that went for 20-odd or whatever, and they ended up losing that game. But there were those two games for Afghanistan where they nearly beat India, they bowled them out for sod all, and, and then somehow managed to stuff up the chase. Oh. And then they nearly beat Pakistan in the next game back to back and and uh, as a, a few people mentioned online you know never have you seen the world pull together behind an underdog like barracking for Afghanistan in those two games except for the Pakistan fans who almost had a riot with them outside the game afterwards especially that India game I was covering that game uh, down at the Rose Bowl and uh, yeah they were chasing about 250 or they got Coley out for you know about 50 not even odd. wasn't it like two, 204 was yeah. it? no it was a bit more than that it was, it, was, it was closer to 250 than it was 200 but the, the mm. point is Afghanistan 
um, were broadly on track with 10 overs to go and then Mohamed Shami takes a hat-trick to, to finish it off. Beautifully called by Daniel Norcross on Test Match Special, I should add, that final hat-trick. But um, mm. uh, the... Um, the uh, yeah, the, the the sense that India could lose to Afghanistan, I mean, it would have been right up there with Zimbabwe beating Australia in the 83 World Cup, the biggest upsets in that tournament, maybe Kenya beating the West Indies in, mm. in 1996, right up in, the, in that echelon of, um, of, you know, shock World Cup um, capitulations, but India did get over the line. But yeah, we, we had our moments, didn't we? I mean, Tiger Time with Bangladesh, we talked about them off the top, Jeff, but those stuffed toys, Toby, we used to see the Bangladesh fans to, to each game bringing, it became sort of part of the, the kit. You'd, you'd rock up in, in your Bangladesh outfit and your green and black, your green and red rather, and you would take with you a stuffed Tiger toy, which I, I thought was a... You were thinking yellow and black, weren't you? I was, I was indeed you were. yellow and black. <laughs> uh, the, the, the AFL Tigers, but no, I mean, their supporters were absolutely brilliant yeah uh, I think actually all the Asian nations as they often do Pakistan Sri Lanka India and Bangladesh and Afghanistan brought brilliant fans to the cricket uh, and I think a bit of much needed colour and atmosphere at times especially you know the World Cup tickets weren't the cheapest and if you've ever been to Lords, I love Lords as a ground but as an actual place to go and watch cricket it's quite a flat atmosphere. The best grounds in England to go and watch cricket at are actually mostly in the north where the crowd have a bit more fun and a bit more crack. So there can be some very dull, sensible, stiff upper lip English cricket fans. And it was beautiful watching those blokes there in their, you know, all linen suits. Some poor bloke who bought his World Cup tickets a couple of years ago and paid a fortune for them sat surrounded by thousands of screaming Bangladeshi cricket fans it was a beautiful beautiful thing so no the fans were the fans were brilliant and they were great no matter the weather as well and no matter the context of the game and I think the Afghanistan thing I think the reason we were all getting behind Afghanistan so much is because they were the closest thing we had to an associate nation mm. we didn't have the Kenyas and the Canadas and the Hollands mm. and stuff so Afghanistan was a close friend I personally and again we talked about this at length at the time but I'm a big advocate. I like having the Kenyas and the Canadas and the Netherlands. I know they, they turn up with a lot of rubbish and there's a bit of crap, but it's a cricket World Cup. It's meant to be a point where you get to see the players that you don't get to see normally and your Dwayne Leverocks and people like that. So I think that's why Afghanistan was the closest thing we had to a proper underdog and everyone got behind them so much. But uh, speaking of moments as well in the group stages, what about Owen Morgan 17 sixes? And Rashid Khan with the worst <laughs> bowling figures. This Rashid Khan that everybody had been talking about going into the tournament is this is the kid to watch. Yeah. The worst ever World and Cup bowling figures. 17 sixes. And that Rashid Khan so nearly relieved Mick Lewis of the worst ever one day international figures. Poor old mm. Mickey Lewis in, in the 438 game, South Africa, Australia, went for 113 off 10 overs. Rashid Khan went for 110 off nine overs and then was not asked to bowl the 10th. And Mick Lewis is sitting at home going, come on! <laughs> come on. I'll tell you what though, how, how did Nick Lewis get his full quota of overs? How, how was the captain going, yeah, a couple more from captain, that end? That's how. <laughs> <laughs> plan A, plan A, plan A. <laughs> It'll come good. It'll come good. Yeah, how did he get his full 10 overs and how did Rashid Khan get nine? But yeah, Owen Morgan was just teared off. It was nuts. 17 sixes in an innings. There, there were some really bonkers nights, Jeff, for us as well, recording that, that podcast. I mean, the World Cup Daily, which mm. we loved doing. And, and most of them uh, were, were geared around games that finished very late or, or unexpectedly. So yep. late, 
Australia, South Africa, last game of the group stage in Manchester. We had mm. to be at Canterbury for the Women's Ashes One Day International the next morning, so we drove overnight yep. from Manchester to Canterbury to make it work. Um, we didn't say this at the time, but we were both, we were clearly, um, Jeff, you had a microphone and I had a microphone, which wasn't perhaps the safest way to do it on the on the motorway, but we, we managed to um, save some time doing it that way. But also when uh, we did a similar thing after that two-day semi-final. So, I mean, it's still, you think about it, if not for the the chaotic scenes at Lords with the Super Over. We would look at that semi-final, yeah. the two-day rain-affected game at Old Trafford between India and New Zealand, mm. where New Zealand had India, what was it, three for ten or something like that, yeah. um, in reply. And after we all thought New Zealand had been too conservative when they were batting with Williamson and Taylor taking their time. But in the end, they, they played it perfectly and had just enough runs to get them over the line. But, I mean, you know, that, that semi-final, Toby, I mean, that's what we were... Wanting, we were, we were talking about having a great semi-final, much as there was 20 years earlier with Australia and South Africa. I mean, Australia and England ended up being a bit of a damp squib. You mentioned already how easily England pounded Australia in, in the second semi, but the first semi, that was brilliant. Yeah, I completely agree. And, uh, yeah, that Kane Williamson, I talked earlier about how batsmen suddenly realised they weren't going to set 350. If you look at probably the two best, cons- best consistent batsmen in the tournament, were not actually your Josh Butlers and your Ben Stokes. They were your mm. Joe Roots and your Kane Williamsons, who actually learnt, if I could go a run a ball here for my team, I could do a real job. And Kane Williamson, probably the best losing World Cup performance of a tournament you could ever wish to see. He looked like you could just couldn't get him out. You couldn't bowl anywhere at him. He can run a ball down to third man from anywhere. You can bowl him or mm. wide down the leg side and he still gets over to it and runs it down to third man. And so Kane Williamson was... Uh, was a joke and that semi-final I think it was nice to see because I love cricket but as you guys know especially in the UK more so I'd say it's still quite a niche sport in a way it's mainstream but niche at the same time like you either watch it or you don't know anything about it and I was watching people slowly who aren't usually cricket fans getting into it and watching a bit um, and so it was great to see that that semi-final was when I suddenly felt like, oh, wow, great, the whole nation's invested in this now. Yeah. Obviously, because England had got to the final as well. But uh, people following people on Twitter and Facebook that you know are cricket fans, you know, reacting to the semi-final, that's what a Cricket World Cup should do. It should it should break all the boundaries that people don't normally watch cricket, start watching it. And it was a slow burner because the tournament went on for like 15 months. But by the time we got to that semi-final, I, f- I suddenly felt, right, this is it. People are watching it now, and it was great, yeah. I don't want to get diverted into the final right yet, but I do need to respond to your comment to say if, if Kane Williamson had the best losing performance, Joe Root surely had the worst winning performance in that final. I think he was seven off 30 balls that he made. And had England not somehow managed to win that <laughs> final, he would have been carrying that for the rest of his life, that he's the guy who fucked it that badly when the final came was around. Was it Colin the Granholm? You couldn't hit that bloke mm. off. The, you couldn't hit him off the square all tournament. You, nobody could get him off the square. He was just yeah. bowling little wicket to wickets, little cutters, little cross seamers and nobody could get him off the square and he just bowled at Joe Root and Joe Root isn't the sort of player that's going to step down and he's spank you over your head. He could have got anywhere off the ground hope. Yeah, I love the idea that there's still still room in the game for someone like Colin de Granholm at about 119 kilometres an hour in a World Cup final. I think did he... Would I be right? I think he was on inside the first 10 overs as well. Yeah. New Zealand started well and then he bowled his 10 overs out straight, picked up those two. I ended up riding that night on World Cup final night, you know, the most extraordinary finish of any 50-over game of all time. I wrote about the Grandholm 
and just to, you know, <laughs> I thought I thought it was just like worth laying a marker, worth having one piece of writing devoted to the losing side and the before. Because remember, he stunk it up with the bat as well. He he really battled in the final ten overs, and you know, for someone with a lesser character, you could really drop your bundle with the ball after having not performed with the bat. But no, mm. to Cranholm, yeah, had they got over the line, um, he would be you know the sort of World Cup hero that gets talked about forever, unexpected World Cup hero given the the, the nature of his very pedestrian medium pace, but wasn't to be. Speaking of games that finished late, uh, an honourable mention here to Nathan Coulter-Niles' innings against the West Indies, one of the most <laughs> extraordinary lower order innings you'll ever yeah. see. 92, was it? I think that he made at, at Trent that. Bridge. Yeah. Uh, Philip Meng, the inventor of Nerd Pledge, wrote in saying that that was his abiding memory, was that innings and then that game that because of the two teams with really bad over rates and because of how close to the finish it went, Philip Meng just sprinting for his train in, at Trent Bridge trying to, to, to get on the train to get back to London after that game but that, that was an extraordinary day We did the same thing Jeff. I don't know if you remember this but we had to sprint to make a train that evening as well having left Trent Bridge quite late and I will always remember that train journey because that was when we met our mate Lawrence who ended up um, not coming on the show as we wanted him to do but um, former North Hans second 11 mm. spinner um, extraordinarily funny chat a comedian I follow his Instagram stuff now he's, he's very You get all the big guests on this podcast don't you? A, <laughs> a North Hans second a 11 spinner Fuck it, no expense spared. My word. They've been on the piss all day, and they, they kept Jeff and myself company. I think they listened to the show. So, uh, uh, but yeah, th- those tra- but it was more for me reflective of those crazy train trips. I mean, a number of times we got caught with the Barmy Army, Toby, and you know what it's like when you're trying to work and everyone else is fucking hammered around yeah. you, and you're just trying to. You would want you'd, nothing you want more than to crack open four beers immediately and down them Stone Cold Steve Austin style. But you've just got to keep working, and that was the pretty commitment we were often in on these late night train journeys back to London after, you know, games that finish at 8 o'clock or whatever. You two showed incredible self-control throughout the tournament because that is, I always say to people that don't like cricket, I said, come with me to a game because it's the best sport in the world to go and watch because you just sit there and get pissed all day. So for you two to be <laughs> sat there surrounded by that, you, you did very, very well. I, I worked at a pub for two years and I hated it because I didn't like not being drunk with everybody else. And also drunk people, are, if you're sober, drunk people are so annoying. So you did very well to surround yourself with a lot of that chaos. Oh, I miss it. I miss it. <laughs> we, we, we found a couple who weren't annoying, who, who were the ones who entertained us. So Lawrence wanted to start a wrist spin academy and yeah. then we introduced him to Brad, Brad Hogg, Hogg. When, when we got off the train. That's Brad right. Hogg I, was just I, wandering by and we said, well, you, you two should chat. Yeah, we I, mean, I, I think we'd been commentating with Brad Hogg. I think Brad Hogg had been part of our coverage that day on the radio and then I saw him at the other end of the train. I'm like, oh, you've got to meet this guy. He's a left yeah. arm wrist spinner as well and left him to it. And they said, apparently they spent an hour <laughs> out the front of the station at midnight before they got on the tube just talking about wrist spin. <laughs> <laughs> that is, that's, that's the most Bringing beautiful World together. Cup story I've ever heard, yeah. yeah and Brad Hogg only bowled googlies as well. What a man. What a man. Any kid that goes to the Brad Hogg Spin Academy is going to have a hell of a googling. I liked this message from Nick Welch who said, it just became a lifestyle for a period of time. Mess up your sleep, daily conversations about past and next games, huddling around a phone on the dance floor to see Afghanistan implode on multiple occasions, kind of like joining a cult. <laughs> that, that's really what the experience of that those 15 months of World Cup were like. You get called a cult a lot on social media, don't you, Jeff? <laughs> Sometimes. <laughs> I think Sometimes. it's I think it's something like that. Well, I think it's what with World Cups, that's kind of what gave us the idea of the World Cup Daily Podcast. And indeed, Toby, what we did with with you and Yahoo when we sort of pitched it originally, it was 
um, that during the Football World Cup the previous year, I was in Zimbabwe covering an Australian tour down there, just a relatively you know, irrelevant T20 tournament. But um, every day I was listening to the independent um, had their daily football podcast with Jonathan Liu was on. It was really interesting. And I thought we should do something similar every day to get that kind of buy-in. And Jeff, I think that was perhaps the most gratifying part of it for us was that people were taking us in. We were their World Cup eyes and ears because we were there at the ground each day, you know, whether we were recording the podcast sort of sitting on the turf at Lords or in a commentary mm. box somewhere or when we were walking through the streets of Nottingham one night, driving on the motorway, Fucked up nowhere else. We did it everywhere at different points, but people were there with us, and and you know that that was a really lovely part of the the whole experience. Yeah, the the finest night was the one when we were having a drink with you, Toby, in a bar, and then we went outside and recorded the podcast on a bin. That's right, out the front of the, the, the bar that we were in. Um, we're a couple of classy individuals. Yes, yeah, just set up the kit on a rubbish bin, and and away we went. One little thing I wanted to mention that that just came back to mind is the angry Pakistan guy. Do you remember this fan? There's a photo of this angry Pakistan fan. He's not wearing any of the kit. He's not dressed up in the clobber. He's wearing a nice dress shirt and he's in the stands and he's got his hand on his hip and he's just glaring sternly at Pakistan after they lose another game. He's just very, very disappointed. And he became beautifully emblematic for me of how it must feel to try to follow that team. <laughs> I think it's, we've all agreed that when you've uh, got in trouble with your, with your partner or your parents when you're a kid that... Anger is easier to take, but disappointment that that cuts deep. And uh, so, yeah, I'd much rather have nineteen thousand Pakistan fans shouting at me and calling me a cult than uh, just one very, very disappointed one just shaking his head. I'd much rather just have the nineteen thousand just going at me, but one bloke's disappointment is, uh, yeah, that that hurts. That cuts deep. We were at a few Pakistan games. The one that jumps out, Jeff, to me is when Australia played them uh, and David Warner made his first big contribution of the tournament, made a century. But it was the start of that kind of idea that, that Warner was back in business and he did that lengthy mm. press conference that night before we jumped on the um, we jumped on the, the, the Venga bus that night, didn't we? We went on the... Um, we jumped yeah. on the, the Gav Joshi, Barat Sandarason, Venga bus from... Where were we going from? Taunton to Nottingham or something Taunton? like that? In any case, yeah, it was a long right. journey on their camper van. Um, but before jumping on, we, we, we thought we'd listen to David Warner. And yeah, it, it's easy to wash over it now. But at the very start of the comp, Toby, the booing of Smith and Warner, um, that day at Bristol when, when you know, it was a day-night game, a lot of boozed-up Bristolians, uh, and they gave it to them. And that mm. was part of the tournament, when, especially when Virat Kohli told the Indian fans to stop booing Smith. And, you know, that, that I mean, I know it went into a different level when the Ashes arrived. But, yeah, it, it was easy to kind of almost look over the fact that it was their first international cricket back after the Sandpaper bans. Yeah, it was, uh, it was a great sort of bubbling understory to the World Cup. Mm. Was that what this, this, well, I think just the Ashes being around the corner without any of that would have been a nice sort of undercurrent to the whole Cricket World Cup anyway. But knowing that there was a summer of Cricket World Cup in England, Ashes in England... Uh, Warner and Smith returning for the Cricket World Cup and we kind of knew that was a chance I think we were seeing it you, you look back to 2005 uh, I think we look back now at that 2020 that England spanked Australia in at the Rose Bowl in Hampshire just mm. before the Ashes started them, the sort of mental effect that had on the whole the series and I think we knew England fans that we could do a bit of psychological damage to Australia hopefully now but I don't think it worked in the end because I think we booed ourselves out by the time the Ashes arrived so by the time the ashes rolled round, Smith and Warner had been getting booed up and down the country for months, and it was water off a duck's back. And I think actually 
in hindsight, we would have been better off banking the booze maybe until that first Ashes Test match. But uh, it's a, that was a fascinating undercurrent of the whole thing. And David Warner, when you watched him in the World Cup, there were glimpses of you know shit. He's back here, and he's and he's and he's got a point to prove. And then actually, you've, he was hopeless in the Ashes. But I went I, going into the Ashes, I thought he could easily come out of the whole series top run scorer. There was no inkling that he wasn't in form going into the Ashes. I thought there's enough. We've seen enough here that David Warner could easily turn up at the Ashes here pissed off, pissed off at all the booing and come and score a few hundred runs, but uh, basically couldn't play Stuart Broad. Couldn't play Stuart Broad. One of the nominations from a lot of people was Alex Carey, who came in down the order for Australia a lot of times and just played some of the most clean, sparkling, sort of late order innings that you could imagine when, like you said, there were a lot of innings where Batsman was struggling to get up above, you know, four and a half, five and over. And he'd come in and be going seven, eight and over at the end and suddenly be able to time the ball. And it was interesting as an Australian watching on because he'd never really done it in international cricket before. He'd never quite delivered. Um, and he didn't necessarily have a great record even at domestic cricket, but suddenly it all clicked in those few weeks. And, and he became the kind of Australian cricketer that even English supporters were able to bring themselves to like. Yeah, we talked about Colin de Grandhome earlier. Uh, that's the nice thing about World Cups is that you do find these players, you know, New Zealand at the start of the tournament wouldn't have banked on great 10 overs from Colin every game that go at for 25, 30 <laughs> runs. Yeah, you've already thought, oh, he'll bowl six or seven overs a game. And Alex Carey was the same. I don't think, you know, when you look down that Australia team, you weren't banking on Carey. You're banking on Warner, Smith, your Maxwells of the world and stuff like that. There's so many superstars in that team of which Carey was not one of them. Uh, but he came in and I think you guys obviously knew a lot more about him than we did. To the average cricket fan over here in the UK, it was Alex Carey, so what? But uh, he timed the ball beautifully and uh, probably should have been given a chance to bat a few more overs than he did actually because he never got a huge score because he he kept running out of time. Um, But a bit like uh, Chris Rogers did it in the test team, who a pretty good, if unspectacular, domestic record. Some just, some, I don't know if they prefer the pace on the ball or they need that challenge mentally of that top level, but some end up, Andrew Strauss was the same for England. He was better playing test cricket for England than he ever was playing four-day games against Gloucestershire for Middlesex. Some players just need that mm. pressure. And uh, Alex Carey, yeah, he came out of that tournament. Uh, he, he, he certainly did his reputation no harm at all. You ended up playing quite a bit of cricket yourself during that World Cup. Was that inspiration drawn from, you know, just just stewing in that, that soup of cricket that England was at the time? Uh, no, mate, I, I play cricket every <laughs> single Saturday. Uh, I have done since I was 10 years old. I've never missed a cricket season in my life. I still would be playing this season if it weren't for, for the lockdown. In fact, I'm missing playing cricket so much. But no, if uh, I've not missed a cricket season my whole life. Um, so, yeah, it's... Uh, it's uh, it's a shock to the system of my of my partner Pippa who didn't realise that what going out of a cricketer involves just disappearing for fifteen hours in a day. But yeah, I I would be playing right now every Saturday if it weren't for weren't for this lockdown. I know there's bigger issues in the world, but I am missing bowling my Colin de Grand Home medium paces. <laughs> well, you hit the stumps some of the time. We've seen evidence. <laughs> so the, the World Cup final, even the, even a year on, do you look back at it and think? How the hell did that happen? Uh, some sometimes it just still doesn't seem plausible. Yeah, it's. Uh, I, I I think I mentioned earlier about how a lot of people that didn't normally watch cricket then tuned in for the for the final. One of the best things that happened was 
the cricket final getting shown on Channel 4 over here in the UK was was huge. And uh, well done to Sky Sports and Channel 4 for coming together to make that happen. So that meant that suddenly everybody could watch it. So then suddenly I remember the build-up to the game going, oh, I hope it's a good game because loads of my mates that don't normally watch cricket have said they're sitting in front of the TV all day with a few beers watching. And, you know, I was I went around my dad's to watch it because he got me into my love of cricket. So I was around his and we just sat there glued to the TV all day. Um, I didn't care personally if we won the most boring game of cricket in the world, but I did think it would be great for an advert for the game of cricket if it was a decent game here, or, you know, at least one team scored 350 and hit a load of sixes so that the neutrals had something to enjoy. You never, ever could have written what happened. Um, and I, I re-watched it, actually. They did a playback here a few months ago at the start <laughs> of lockdown, which I'm sure you're aware of, that they played it ball by ball as if it was live a few weeks ago. And I sat in front of the whole thing all over again. And, uh, oh, it's just nuts. I mean, it is just nuts. And when you at the halfway stage, I remember thinking, we'll, we'll chase this in 42, 43 overs, you know, four, five, six wickets down. I, I did not see that total being a, being a problem at all, but it's just the pressure. The pressure of a World Cup final. Suddenly, two hundred and thirty looks like three hundred and thirty. Try and uh, give us a sense of, as an England fan, uh, what your last, let's say, last twenty minutes was like watching the Super Over. Because I mean, for us, we were working at the ground. It's a bit different, you know. You, you, you you're, you're in the moment, and you know, I was very, very privileged to be commentating the the, the Super Over for radio, so I have a, a fairly unique perspective on it. But as a fan, I mean, I can barely imagine like if I put myself in a football context if Hawthorne were in the grand final and that was the finale the last couple of minutes I'd be unable to control myself I mean how was it for you and your old man watching it together at the very end (laughs) yeah so my dad it it wasn't just me and him he had like a whole summer party that was planned for that day anyway so so when he when he organized he does a summer party every year in his garden with a big marquee and stuff and he organized it months Mm. in advance and he told me the date and I went you're doing it when and he goes yeah Sunday and I went you dickhead, Dad. I said that's Cricket World Cup final day, and he was like, "You are." <laughs> he goes, "You are kidding me." So he ordered a huge TV screen, and uh, the the party ended up being everybody just stood around the cricket. Like I was so antisocial. I went, "Dad, I'm coming, but I'm just going to sit in front of the big TV and watch it." So we sat there, and then yeah, it was. Um, I mean, the ro- the roller coaster of emotions. Watching the playback the other week, I was trying to remember what I thought at the time. And I remember being so confident, even when Root couldn't hit it off the square, because we batted so deep, I just kept going, look, one of them's going to tee off here. One of them's going to tee off. And when Butler went, I thought, shit, this is actually now. Uh, (laughs) I was like, actually now. And then genuinely in your head, you're just going, as long as Ben Stokes is in, you've got a chance. Genuinely, I'm not saying that now to look like a genius, but at the time you're just going, if Ben Stokes is there, he's Superman. You know, anything is possible. Uh, I tell you what, watching back, I really now was. There was obviously the moment, the famous moment where the throw comes in and deflects off Ben Stokes's bat, which, let's be honest, is the reason we managed to get it to a super over. That doesn't happen. New Zealand win that Cricket World Cup final. But the Trent Bolt catch when he then steps on the rope, mm, mm. And he that's that's a terrible piece of cricket. And Trent Bolt uh, bowled badly, bowled badly in the game in the super over. And that catch, that is bread and butter. Modern day cricketers, they practice all day long. How many catches do we see now where you take the catch inside the ropes and either chuck it back to yourself or chuck it to your mate? And he and he had somebody, I forget, mm. maybe Guptill to his left. Yeah, yeah. Guptill there. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I think a couple of a couple of things to that is that one is that he he taken a very similar catch to dismiss Carlos Brathwaite um, in that 
crazy finish at Manchester when Brathwaite put on 70-odd for the final wicket with whoever was batting number 11, just brought up his 100. And on that occasion, Bolt held the ball, put his foot back and was within the line by, within the boundary line by, you know, six inches, not even, a couple of centimetres perhaps. On this occasion, I think Bolt was trying to do exactly the same thing. And you, you look at it, Bolt's one of the best fielders in the world. I mean, some of the catches he's taken, mm. even the two runouts to end the 50th over in regulation, the, 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 the takes and the takes you know, on the bounce on the half volley and then having the presence of mind to, to get the ball to the bales without breaking the stumps with his arm, that's bloody hard to do. So mm. he did the harder task when you consider that, as you say, he holds on to that catch and it's game over. Yeah, I just I, uh, it kind of got lost in the craziness of the super over yeah, and, the, and yeah. the ball hitting the bat. But I mean, Chet Bolt that must haunt him. That must haunt him. That that catch because mm. it, it wasn't even close. He, it was he was safely inside the rope. He probably stepped back. I think he was actually maybe too comfortably inside the rope that he didn't think it was a factor. I think he thought I'll take this. I've got space for a step back. And then you can see the look on his face when he feels his heel pressed down on those foamy, weird things that are on top of the boundary rope. Mm. That, that is the game there, that catch. And there's a photo with the look on Guptill's face as, as the foot's going down and mm. Guptill's going, oh, <laughs> like just mid, you know, mid horror. And then he's about to have his own horror moments. So. Yeah, and Guptill's Yeah, I mean, poor old... Someone someone popped up on Twitter the other day a thing saying um, if you could change the result of one match in sports history, what would it be? And, and Jimmy Neesham was just popping it up saying, can't think of anything. Uh, <laughs> you, you, you still feel for them. Jimmy Neesham is the funniest man on Twitter out of nowhere. I don't know where he yeah. came from. But, uh, yeah, speaking of Martin Gotto as well, he, especially after that World Cup he had four years before this one, you just kept waiting for him to come good. And I remember in that super over... Nishim was a rogue choice. I don't think anyone thought that they would go Nishim. You'd think mm. maybe, what, Guptill and Ross Taylor, maybe Kane Williamson as well. Uh, but fair mm. play to Nishim. He spanked Joffre Archer 50 rows back. But uh, Guptill coming out to bat, he had a shocking tournament, like a really poor tournament. I remember even watching him come out and go, this would be sod's law. He's barely hit the ball all tournament and he's going to just melt 16, 17, 18 in this super over here <laughs> off Joffre Archer. Um, and let's be honest, Two terribly bold super overs. That gets lost in this as well. Two awful, awful uh, uh, two bold super overs. I mean, Trent Bolt, the four off the last ball was when it went from being a decent total to the four off the last ball of the over, which where you go, actually, England should protect this. Joffre Archer barely gone for any runs all tournament. And then he came in and he, pressure. You know, you suddenly, for the first time ever, he had been so ridiculously cool and calm under pressure for the first time ever when Joffre Archer bowled that wide first ball you went oh yeah he is actually only 24 and this is only his eighth one day international or something and you can see it there mm. so bad cricket actually often leads to really exciting cricket and there was a lot of bad mm. cricket played towards the end there but it made it for the best best spectacle of sport I think possibly I've ever seen it uh, it doesn't really seem like a year ago but it is. Uh, well, at least the start of it is. Uh, is there anything else that sticks out to you when you cast your mind back a year? Uh, I, just, I just remember that every Monday when we sat down to chat, we were all so excited about what had happened in the preceding week and we're like, we get to talk about this again. Uh, cricket, cricket fans, as you know, we're geeks and we're nerds for the sport and we love the sport. So to sit down every Monday morning with, with some lovely chaps and just be nerds 
was lovely. Just to to chat about the fact that Alex Carey's looking in good nick. I mean, that's, if I walk into the office at work and go, hey, Alex Carey's in good nick, they would not know who I was talking about. <laughs> but luckily, I, I had some nerds who could... Yeah, is he a winger for Everton? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> hey, guys, did you see Milana at the opening ceremony? <laughs> <laughs> so yeah just being cricket geeks and being and cricket being sexy and cricket being on the front pages uh, and, and the World Cup capturing the whole nation's imagination was beautiful a star was born in Ben Stokes he became a national treasure an absolute national treasure he still is to this day um, and yeah I just uh, I look back at it very fond memories in fact I, I slightly blame that super over for the pandemic we're experiencing now because I feel like the world peaked at that super over. I'm not a religious man, but whoever you believe in, he was up there looking down and going, yeah, they've had it too good here. We're going to have to, they, they need they need a shit year now because I've just, I've just given them a super over and a Cricket World Cup final. They need to remember, they need to remember that the world's not always that brilliant. I think that's where the world peaked at the super over. It's been lovely being able to have a little stroll down memory lane with you. Toby Tarrant, thanks so much for joining The Final Word. Thank you very much for having me, chaps. I know it's tough to get on this podcast, especially if you're a North fan, second 11 off spinner, but uh, it's, uh, it's been, it was an honour to be invited. Mate, lovely to see both your faces as well and look forward to sharing a beer with you in the future when this is all over. Can't wait, mate. Thanks for coming You on. have to be a left-arm wrist spinner. It's a little bit of a higher Oh, uh, Fair enough. Okay, fair enough. I'll go and work on my Chinaman bowling and, uh, and see, you, see you when this <laughs> pandemic's over. Hi, I'm Natalie Jamanis, and you're listening to The Final Word with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins. It's The Final Word. I'm Adam Collins. He's Jeff Lemon. Thanks again to Toby Tarrant. He's a ripping fella. Enjoy his radio show on Radio X, and uh, and I'm sure we'll hear him again on The Final Word at some stage. Jeff, now, though, it is time for... Nerd Pledge! Nerd Pledge, the game of nerds, the game of pledges, the game we play with people on our patron page where they support the show by sending us a number of dollars and cents that relates to a cricketing number and we have to work out what it is. That's the smoothest I've ever done, that introduction. That was, uh, that was crisp. <laughs> It was crisp, but like like a creme brulee, like crisp on the top, but creamy underneath. You know, it was all <laughs> of the textures you want. Nerd pledge. It, it, it first. Well, now I'm just going to completely stuff it up by tripping over all of my words. We will have a, a couple of callbacks to previous things we've looked at. We were talking about players who'd taken a wicket with a no ball for their first wicket in Australia. Uh, Dane mm. Hanstead mentioned one that we'd missed. Both Ooh. you and I forgot about Ben Stokes. In 2013, in ben Adelaide, Stokes in he got Brad Haddon out. Brad Haddon, yeah. I knew, I knew Haddon had got out off a no ball when he made that 100, and he got dropped about three times as well. He really rode his luck that summer, but I forgot that Stokes was the bowler when he debuted in Adelaide, um, who had him caught somewhere, I think, and then Michael Carberry dropped him. And Anyway, good work, Dane. Spotted that one. That is very good. I mean, I've, I've used that stat quite a bit uh, in various different ways. So adding Ben Stokes to that list is, is quite impressive. Thank you, Dane Hanstead, for getting in touch on that one. Joe Lundy was impressed with all the things we did with his numbers, uh, but said it wasn't that interesting. It was Joe Angel's shield wicket tally, which I do not agree. I think that's very interesting. You know, we Hell love yeah. a bit of Joe Angel work on the <laughs> final word, uh, especially a Sheffield shield number. And Michelle Garland confirmed that her... 566 was definitely a fifer, but it wasn't Daniel Vittoria who we'd been talking about. But she said it was an English bowler who 
often looked grumpy and still does, which means it has to be Angus Fraser, who took five for 66 against the Windies at Lords in 1995. Very good, Michelle. One of the best friends of the show on social media. We're very grateful for her support. Jeff, we have some new numbers, the first of which is from Jack Quigley, another great mate of the show on Twitter, and he's got 381 or 3.81. Yes, 381. Now, Jack Quigley, of course, wrote the best parody song I've ever come across, better than all of Weird Al's stuff, when he rewrote How to Make Gravy as the song that Steve Smith <laughs> writes to Tim Payne when he was suspended from the team uh, during ahead of that, that sad summer of 2018-19. Of so um, that's actually in my book. I, it was so good I had to publish it. Uh, so well done, Jack. 381 is a score that Australia made in the World Cup, actually, uh, since we were discussing the World Cup before, against Bangladesh at Trent Bridge, and Bangladesh yeah. had a pretty good run chase. But I, I don't think it was that memorable, so I'm not sure if that would be it. I reckon 381 is from the test match when Pakistan chucked it in Sydney in 2010, <laughs> uh, when they rinsed Australia for 127, and then they dropped Mike Hussey about 17 times to blow a lead of over 200. Australia made 381. Pakistan got bowled out for bugger all on the last day and somebody made a lot of money. Yeah, I was sitting with Glenn McGrath name drop, uh, for that um, all out 127 on, on the first day and I um, left the country uh, I think that night, I went on a holiday in Malawi for a couple of weeks, so I didn't get to see <laughs> anything that followed, so I was uh, and there's no, that was in the era where you couldn't get data on your phone over there or any of that so I found out upon I don't know, maybe five or six days after the test match that Australia had actually won after being skittled for 127. But yeah, I know Mike Hussey was influential at the end and kind of all hell broke loose. <laughs> it's also the amazing summer that I remember mainly for the trials and tribulations of Shane Watson. This is when he became yeah. a truly wonderful, tragic figure. When he was trying to get his first test century and it just kept not happening for him. He got out for 96 in Adelaide. He Terrible got out shot. for 89 in Perth. <laughs> they were all horrible shots. The, he got the, out. The 96 especially. First ball of the day. On, I think it was first ball of the day. On 96 and he tried to tried to uh, pop whoever the West Indies spinner was at the time. He tried to pop them over the Victor Richardson gates and ended up losing his middle stump. <laughs> <laughs> so 89 in Perth makes 97 in Melbourne as well as running out Simon Cuttage for 98 yeah. and then and then in the uh, so so that's in the first innings, first innings in Melbourne yeah. Then he gets dropped on 97 in the second dig and manages to get his 100. I remember that one. He just it was catching practice, just chopped it straight at Gully, who dropped a straight forward and catch. Dropped I think it, the Jeff? ball ended up going for four. Uh, I don't remember who dropped it. Yeah, Someone you died. do. Yeah, you do. Another player that's an, another player that enjoyed a long ban. Uh, wasn't Cameron Akmal, was it? Muhammad Amir. Oh, Muhammad Amir. Well, no, yeah. he dropped Ricky Ponting, but did he drop Shane Watson as well? I reckon he did. I reckon he dropped him at the backward point of the gully, and I reckon he was on 99 yeah. as well, not 97. My, my recollection mm. is, is that um, Watson scampers through and nearly gets run out right, completing his 100th run <laughs> after being put... Something like that. It, it, it's, it's a... It's a, yeah. it's a I mean, I, that, that's, my te that's my memory of it 10 years ago, um, yep. whether that marries up with reality. But um, in any case, he did get there, and it was one of his four test entries. After all that, he goes to Sydney for this match and then gets out for 97 <laughs> to follow up. They go, he's finally made the 100. The monkey's off the back. No, he's out for 97. Next yeah. hit. So what a time that was to be alive. I love that. And it could easily be that. Indeed, I'm sure it's something to do with that. I've got something else, though, purely because it's been on my mind recently. Um, one of 15 players uh, to make their first class debut before the age of 17 and still play after the age of 44, a list which includes W.G. Grace, is Fred Titmus, who, of course, played 
what a marathon of a career. He played from 1949 until 1982. So that's five separate decades, I think that was had to be. 40s, 50s, 60s, yep. 70s, 80s, yeah. So much like John Farnham having number one hits in five separate decades. Um, uh, Fred Titmus <laughs> played first-class cricket in five different decades. He was the 381st test cricketer to play for England. And what's... I mean, there's a lot of interesting things about Titmus, not least the fact that um, he lost four of his toes on the 1967-68 mm. tour of the West Indies, tragically, in a, in a boating accident. But, um, you know, he was still playing international cricket and, and first-class cricket for, for many, many years after that. I, I received a DM the other week from one of our listeners. Uh, they might be Karanda, um, who uh, who sent me a message to let me know that um, he was thinking about us. I don't know how this came up exactly, but the song, Fucking Hell, It's Fred Titmus by Half Man, Half Biscuit. Um, that that ended, entered my um, DMs a, a couple of weeks ago. So, And because last week, of course, I was writing and reading about longevity and first-class longevity with Suwanji Madanyaka, who we talked about on Nerd Pledge the other week, but, but Titmus became part of that conversation. So it's front of mind. So my my nomination for 381 is indeed Fred, Fred Titmus. We'll see how we've gone there, Jack. <laughs> I don't know what anything that you said in the last two and a half minutes meant. I have no idea what you're talking about, but I'm, I'm happy to accept it. Good. Yep. The guy with the guy with no foot. If you lose part of your foot in a boating accident, could you put it down to the undertow? Maybe you could. At least we got there in the end, Jeff. Uh, next up, the real Patch Clap. This is exciting. Patch Clap's been uh, part of this uh, segment before for, for strange reasons, which we, we might revisit. Uh, he, he's got 3.06, Jeff. Do you want to just explain, if you didn't hear the other week, where Patch Clap fits in? Yeah, so Patch Clap was fraudulently put on the list by a friend of his pretending to be Patch Clap in order to surprise Patch Clap. But Patch Clap, it's quite fun saying Patch Clap. It's quite satisfying. Um, it does sound like a medical procedure when you've got yourself into a bit of strife, but you, know, you need the, the clap patch for your Patch Clap. But he's, uh, he's now come through with his own pledge and also he's double nerded it with David Peterson. Uh, they've both come in with the same number, which is $3.06, which is 3.06. 306. One option has to be Big Carlos Brathwaite. He's uh, West Indies cap number 306. And I know we've talked about his debut a lot on the show, which is a reason why the, the cap might come up. You know, the, the time he came on and punted James Pattinson into the stands a few times at the MCG back in 2016 or whatever it was. Yeah, so he had those first two test matches uh, against Australia. He should have debuted, though, uh, six months earlier, which would be almost five years to the day uh, when Australia started their series in, in the West Indies. He played for the West Indies Board 11 or whatever whatever they called their touring, or, you know, their West Indies A or something like that. And he, he made runs and then he also picked up Chris Rogers with a lovely delivery. I'll never forget it. Um, the, the catch was taken at Gully last ball before lunch and he did a almost a lap of honour around the uh, the Viv Richards Stadium there at Antigua because he was so happy to get Rogers out. Um, but yeah, he wasn't given an opportunity then, but obviously was given that chance later in the year and, and made runs in, in Melbourne and Sydney and a couple of months after that he was uh, Carlos Brathwaite remember the name and hasn't quite had the trajectory you'd expect thereafter been okay in the IPL but um, and of course that World Cup century uh, last year which we were talking mm. about before but um, yeah there, there might be a few more chapters to the Carlos Brathwaite story so maybe it's that Maybe it's that. Maybe it's that we discussed teams making the same score in both innings of a test. And in 1998, Sri Lanka made 306 twice in the test at Cape Town. The second highest twin scores after India's double 407s. They still lost that match. How it's did you find that? that How did you I find just, a twin? I tried so hard last week to find the double twin scores. Well, you know, I just... Uh, 
Yeah, you've just got to want it bad enough, Adam. It's just it's just about desire. It's just about I mean, you and I. You and I know every. You got to fucking want it. You and I know every inch of Stats Guru, and I'm tipping that's how you've done mm. it. And I, I couldn't find a way to get it to spit a list out for me, which disappointed me at the mm. time. But you clearly have. You. I, d- I didn't find it in a list form. I, I found it from manual trawling. Um, right. It, it yeah, which is what I was doing instead of writing my book today. <laughs> <laughs> I was finding double three oh six. I hope it was productive. <laughs> but but here's where I reckon it's landing. I I suspect that Patch is English because mm-hmm. Patch's friend put up a number relating to Steve Smith making yeah. 100 at the Gabba, which I would take as some sort of uh, cricket teasing type thing, in mm-hmm. which case I reckon it's the fact that England bowled out India for 306 in the World Cup, since we're talking World Cup today, last year, when, when England sort of said that they were back in town in the 2019 World Cup is when they smashed in- India at Birmingham by making three... 50-odd and then bowling India out for 306. So I reckon that's it for Patch. And I reckon for David Peterson, it's that we've talked a lot about the 1999 West Indies tour recently, and especially the fourth test when Australia's spin combination was Stuart McGill and Colin Miller. I don't need to go into who was not selected for that match. But to set up that win in the third innings and to draw the series, relying on a Justin Langer century, it was Australia making 306. So that's where I'm going with 306 for David Peterson and the real patch clap. You covered a lot of bases there, Jeff. Very nicely done. And last, well, no, not last, actually, the penultimate nerd pledge number today is 770. Very generous. Thank you, Callum McLeod. Uh, Jeff, take it away. Where, where did you get to to begin with? And I'll, and I'll, and I'll follow you in. Well, Kel McLeod, I'm, I'm pretty sure this is Kel McLeod who I play cricket with sometimes at the, uh, the Dan O'Connell Cricket Club. If so, hello, Kel. What I could come up with was, could this be Frank Worrell again? I know we've talked about Frank Worrell on the show in the pledge three weeks in succession now. <laughs> We're not being paid off by the Frank Worrell estate. But in 1957 at Leeds, before he'd been made West Indies captain, England, yeah. in a ridiculous game, England won by an innings despite yeah. being rolled out for 279. So they, they managed to run through the West Indies both times. But in the one time they batted, Frank Worrell, known as a top-order batsman, took his career-best figures of 7 for 70 with left-arm spin. I'm not sure that Kel is necessarily like a big Frank Worrell freak, though. Like, I'm not, I don't know where the link would be between Kel and Frank Worrell. So I was thinking that 770 might also be 77 with a zero. It might be a 77. So that could right. be the score Cameron Bancroft made in Cape Town just before he got caught sandpapering the ball. That was a significant 77 when we thought that Bancroft had maybe turned the corner and then he had not turned the corner or he turned a completely different corner. Or it could be what Joe Root made in the Headingley Mirror test he made 77 in the fourth innings to help set up the Ben Stokes platform I've never seen a, a, a I've never seen a commentator so bereft as Adam Voges when Bancroft was out for 77 in that first innings we were calling together at the time and you know he's mentored him and he was his captain at WA and it did look like didn't it Jeff that Bancroft he batted really nicely like really well that day um, was a lock on, was a lock rather for his um for his maiden test hundred but it wasn't to be mm. and you know, we all know what Well, how about next. poor old Adam Voges who came over, he wasn't even there from the start of that tour. He came over no, to commentate starting with the third test. Yeah. And then yeah. he had to watch Cameron Bancroft not only not make 100, but then uh, start shoving things down his trousers on the field the next day. So poor old Adam. Yeah. 
it was a it was a rough few days. Great man. Uh, I had something else for seven seventy, which again is relating to the research I've been doing recently. I was looking at the mm-hmm. the nineteen thirty eight uh, oval test again this week, uh, and um, so of course we all know that Len Hutton made three hundred and sixty four, uh, broke the world record on that occasion. We all know that England went on to make the highest score in Test cricket nine oh three and all the rest, but. Um, 770 is also a record because when Hutton was dismissed on 364, England were 770 for six. So, in, and the reason that's a record is that there's never been a player who's been in the middle whilst 770 runs have been acquired before or since. So that mm-hmm. in itself remains a record. But another point that um, that I that I found about this this week is that in 38 it was the second Test match ever on television. In, in England, uh, only sort okay. of, sort of six thousand TV sets that existed in the uh, in the twenty kilometre or twenty mile radius of Alexandra Palace. As it happens, <laughs> I live about a mile from Ali Pali here, where I am in, in North London. Uh, but um, so you know, if you're and I'm thinking that of, if if you ever found a time machine, if you ever got access to one, and everyone's like, I'd go back to the Coliseum or whatever it is, you would go to 1938 and you would find a house with a TV, and you'd be yeah, like, Excuse me, can I watch your television? <laughs> <laughs> but no, so Hutton that, that week. So Hutton makes his world record. All the rest of it, we all know. We all know that story. But um, <laughs> do what, we? What interesting. Well, people know. I, that I bet there's the a lot record. of people. I like that we're sufficiently nerdy enough that we can say we all know that story. I, I Probably that, most that, of our that listeners have. You know, the, the, the nine oh three for seven and, and the three. People know yeah. that. That's a, that's you know, it's a big ashes moment, right? But mm. um, what I found interesting should be on the citizenship test. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, was that um, was that because it was the second test ever done on telly? They were still trying to find their way through on what was going to work and what wasn't going to work, and they couldn't mm-hmm. get their truck through the gate. The television, the PBC <laughs> couldn't get their equipment through the gate, so they pulled the gate down <laughs> to let them through. It just sounds like a euphemism. So, yeah, right. So it was. So they, they they pulled the roof of the gate off in order to get um, the equipment through at the oval in order to mm. make sure they could broadcast the test. So as Daniel Norcross pointed out, um, it, it was the first of what ended up being many times where TV has dictated terms to cricket. It was happening from the <laughs> very very start. <laughs> so you go seven seven with Callum McLeod. Well, Kel, uh, hopefully we've got somewhere near, well, we've got near some some 770s or 77s or whatever it might be. Uh, Chris Unwin came through with a number, which uh, this was the top of the head one for me, and I wondered if it might be for you, and it does relate to something we've been talking about recently as well. Chris Unwin came through with, so $6.18, so 618. Now, I had a little look at, there are some bowling figures that are 6 for 18, but I don't think it's this. I don't think it's 6 for 18. I think it's something else, but 6 1 8. Oh, uh, okay. 6 1 8. 6 1 8. 6 1 8. So it's not going to be Voges' batting average because that was 60. Isn't it? Points. Is it? I thought no, Voges is 61.8. Batting average. <laughs> Well, in the really unlikely scenario where Vogue is listening to our podcast at the moment, um, he'll he can be told that he's had two two mentions uh, in the yep. this week. Sixty one. Oh, that's great. Let's do that. I, I think that's what it's got to be because he enjoyed being the second behind Bradman until Steve Smith and Manus came along and both selfishly got ahead of him. So now he's only fourth. We kind of didn't either at the same time. I interviewed him when his average was ninety five. So before the Sri Lanka tour, mm. you know. 
the wheels fall off in his career at that point, and that, that's sad that it, you know, happened that way. But at that moment in time, his batting average was ninety five point four, um, and he <laughs> played the necessary twenty innings to constitute a career for the sake of the the statisticians. And when we were in Christchurch, wasn't it, Jeff? New Zealand twentieth innings, and he he was above Bradman at that at that brief time. He got out later in the innings for sixty, and his average dropped below hundred. But there was a a couple of hours where Voges's average was was higher than Bradman's, and one hundred one point six, I reckon, at, at the peak. There you go, very nice. And talking to him at the time about the the ninety five thing, and that he was quite awkward about you know these greats mm. of the game who sat beneath him on that list. So he didn't always feel comfortable, and I still don't think he does, to be honest with you, feel comfortable no. that you know people see the list and they immediately offer up a number of ridiculous caveats about why you know why it should or shouldn't count and, and so on, which is nonsense. But anyway, sixty one point eight is well, that sounds good to me. Let's go with that. Thank you, Chris Unwin. <laughs> that's that's very generous. <laughs> Another good Unwin moment. We've had so many good Unwins uh, in our Nerd yes. Pledge segments. The Tons. Unwins just keep delivering. Tonwins of Unwins. Uh, our final number for today, it's another double up. It's from Ryan Africa, um, who likes to put his allegiance in his name, which I like. Uh, he is definitely a mad South African fan. We've corresponded. And also Brendan Legg. Uh, now, Brendan Legg came in later down the list. And disappointingly, originally he was next to somebody called Luke Kneebone. So Brendan Legg and Luke Kneebone were together. But now Brendan's got the same number as Ryan, so they've joined up. That number is 432. And I looked at this and thought like, oh, like Scooby Doo, like what? Like four thirty two. It's not four. It's not four thirty four. It's not four thirty eight. Which obviously a South African would want to put in relating to the four thirty eight game that South Africa won. But Ryan hadn't done that, and so I had a look at. Obviously, went back and read the ball by ball coverage and. Uh, worked out that nobody was on 432 in that game. Neither Australia nor South Africa ever got on to 432. Australia went from 431 to 433 with a Brett Lee double down the ground and South Africa went from 429 to 433 with Andrew Hall slogging over mid-wicket for four. So, what could it be? Because nobody was on 432 in that game. But then I realised it's the test cap number of Basil Dolavira. And for a massive South African fan, surely it has to be Basil, the England batsman who managed to bring so much light onto the iniquities of the apartheid regime in South Africa in the 60s. Yeah, I, I like that. That's quite good. I, I was um, going back through the, the Benno to Border um, documentary the ABC made in the what probably was the mid-80s. Uh, over the last week or so, and um, and I, I note in that that quite a bit of it is devoted to the 1971-72 series that didn't happen against South Africa for you know the very right reason that um, that there was going to be no access to labour to run the series because the ACTU at the time said they 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 conduct a strike if the South African team came out and that was back in the day when, when those sorts of things could, could literally bring the economy to a grinding halt. So, um, and Mick Young the the the, uh, the then ALP uh, secretary went on to be a minister under Hawke and the mentor of my later boss Wayne Swan was on there explaining uh, the position behind why Australia and why the, the Australian Labor Party and the trade union movement in turn with Bob Hawke wouldn't accept uh, that South African touring side uh, and in that same kind of uh, montage of interviews uh, in that episode of the documentary which is probably more of interest to you Jeff, uh, given your interest in, in Rod Marsh, is that Rod Marsh does an interview about pay and conditions, uh, sort of mm. leading up to the World Series cricket war, uh, where he's being interviewed at stumps by an ABC television reporter, 
in the shower, not just sort of in the shower block, but while the water's streaming <laughs> under his head. Rob, Rob Marsh, you know, presumably got the old boy out. Um, sort of, um, uh, and, and they do like cutaways to the ABC, you know, noddies of the ABC reporter. So, you know, this has been stumps of a day's cricket. Okay? Oh, you know what? I don't want to come out in the field, but if you want to come into the showers with a camera, be my guest. <laughs> I got nothing to hide. <laughs> So anyway, th- uh, thanks to the uh, uh, so, so thanks to the great man Anthony Costa, who um, the man that runs League Tees, and of course uh, our merchandise for the final word is on League Tees for Anthony Costa for uploading uh, Beno to border. That has been most enjoyable. That is incredible. Imagine that that is gumption. You know, that, you talk about raw, uncut footage. That's you know, just come in and have a have a gander, scope it Get out. Some cut- you, got, you got all the cutaways you need. Do you want a few more? Do you want a few more angles of it? <laughs> A few more noddies. Do you want some? Do you want, do you want like, a wide shot? Just pop one of those foam microphone filters on the top and just really complete the job. Uh, Rod, Rod, uh, Uncle Rod, Uncle had, Rod, he had a time. So, so that's where I'm going for Ryan Africa. And and as yep. for Brendan Leg, I don't know why, but I just get New Zealand vibes from some people. Peter Boren's best international bowling figures, four for 32 in a one-day international. Peter Boren, the the, the great uh, Netherlands captain, but who also, well, originally came from New Zealand and had Dutch ancestry and ended up doing such a sterling job leading that associate side for a long period of time. So I'd love to have a, a Peter Boren shout-out in Nerd Pledge. And so, so we shall, Brendan. I'm anointing you with Peter Boren. Yeah, it's good enough for me. I was going to say Moses Henriquez's cap number was 432, but, hey, I'm taking Peter Boren. No reflection on Moses Henriquez. It's simply that <laughs> we need to have Bozza on the final word. Look, now he is. you put him side to side, Boren, Henriquez, Boren, Henriquez. It's a, it's a difficult call. There is no doubt it's a difficult call. I'd like to have them both. I'd like to be sitting in the back seat of a taxi with Boren on one side, Moses on the other. That's the ideal world. But in a world where you can only have one, it's a cutthroat world, Nerd Pledge. It's a cutthroat world. Jeff, that has been a nerd pledge. And if you want to be part of our patron family and, and what a mighty family it's been, we, we had a great response to announcing, if you like, to the world the other day that we'd hit a million downloads with Bear Producer Productions. And we did that on the patron page and it was lovely to get a bunch of responses on there from uh, those of you who've been with us for a long time. And indeed, those of you who've joined in the last few weeks or last few months, I should say, uh, during the, the pandemic. If, if you want to be part of that, it'd be wonderful. Patreon.com forward slash the final word that's in the show notes it's very straightforward and you can pop a nerd pledge in there and we'll do it on the show and if you want to get in touch with jeff and i that's also the best place to do it we really enjoyed fielding a lot of uh, messages on the dm on there so you can slide into the final word dms via patreon patreon.com forward slash the final word be part of it and jeff with that the end of another long and fun and enjoyable hopefully <laughs> for you it's been enjoyable for us uh, episode of the final word i had a really good time today <laughs> Yeah. It absolutely was. Sometimes, got a lot sometimes I finish an episode feeling like I've talked a lot and, and um, sort of talked out. Today I feel like I could talk more. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, that's right. Sometimes they're, they're a struggle, not because we don't enjoy doing it, but because it's hard work, you know, getting all this out there into the, into the public domain and you, you wonder whether it's come across correctly, whether you've said anything offensive, whether you shouldn't have called Alan Jones one of the worst Australians to ever live. <laughs> we should have used more words. There are a whole lot of words we didn't use that we could have used. <laughs> There's more. There, there is a high ceiling on this. <laughs> but other times you finish the show and you're like, yeah, that, that, that felt about right. And, and today uh, ticks that box. So thank you for listening thank you for reviewing and rating us on itunes we have been number one cricket podcast in australia and as we said 
over the last couple of weeks in a bunch of other countries as well and that's in no small part due to those reviews and ratings so if you get the chance to hop on there on iTunes that makes a bit of a difference we've already talked about Patreon uh, and we haven't talked about bad producer productions who are making these very long podcasts for us each week and we couldn't be more grateful for it. Jamie Mueller got us on board with the network, Jeff, at the very start uh, and that, that was a massive turning point for us. And uh, to Jay, um, we could not be more grateful for all the support you provide us in, in the wonderful network that you run. We'll have another episode on the feed on Friday which will be uh, Calling the Shots, episode four of that with myself and Daniel Norcross. It's also in the bad producer stable, of course, but uh, we've got Harsha Bogley, we've got Mark Nicholas, we've got Jim Maxwell back for another gallop as well, talking about um, the emergence of cricket commentary on the television. So we're shifting gears from radio to TV and all oh, that's possible because of Jay Mueller. Um, Dave Collins edits this show each week as well, uh, Jeff. And yeah, sometimes our instructions to Dave are quite detailed because we've gone on for quite a long time and he's he's patient with us and uh, and he's, he's, he's a great editor to work with as well. He always puts it together beautifully. He's tender, he's caring. In many ways, each week I feel like I've been born and Dave is the midwife. Who, who lowers me gently into the manger, which he has fashioned into a cradle. You know, it's that sort of feeling. It's that good. There's a star in the sky above our podcast some weeks. Uh, and remember, the most important thing of all, just for my mental well-being, go to the feed, scroll down to the World Cup Daily, day five, and give it the love that it deserves. It's not that much worse than all the other episodes. It feels bad. Let it in. It is the little match girl Nose pressed to the window. Don't let it freeze to death out in the cold, dark night. This has been the final word. Thanks to Seabus Super. Thanks to Wisdom Cricket Monthly. If you want to jump on and grab their offer, look at it at the show notes. Bitly forward slash WCM final. Thank you, Jeff. I'm Adam Collins. Can't wait to do it all again next week. Until then, goodbye. I had to go about it, write it out.